Joining me today is an activist and advocate who co-founded the student-led gun control advocacy group Never Again MSD. He also helped organize the March for Our Lives nationwide student protest earlier this year. Cameron Kasky, welcome to The Rubin Report. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy that you're here for, for many reasons, uh, mostly because you strike me suddenly as someone that's trying to find some common ground these days, and, and we're gonna get into that and a whole bunch more, but uh, of course I have to mention up top, you are a survivor of the Parkland shooting in Florida. Um, before we go all into that and everything that you've been through since, just tell me a little bit about life before, because I assume you have a life before and now a new life. Well, you know, I spent most of my life as your typical little shitster who just uh, said whatever he wanted to, had a voice. Uh, I was always so convinced that I was right about everything. Whether that was nature or nurture is kind of up to interpretation. But I really grew up just dead set on the fact that I, I knew everything. Everything I said was right, and I was a genius. I learned the hard way recently, a little too recently, that I'm not. And that was a crazy awakening, learning that you don't know everything in the entire world is actually an interesting experience but one of the things that helped me a lot was doing theater I was a big theater kid because mm -hmm. I, I had this voice I always wanted to express myself I was uh, you know I was flippantly loud all the time and do I didn't know what to do with it you know I was knocking doors for Obama when I was seven mm. Wow yeah <laughs> I, I was really interested in you know being active with all that I mean I knew nothing I thought that John McCain was running with Tina Fey not Sarah Palin <laughs> because I had really only seen the news and I, I guess I got it mixed up uh, I was seven. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't expect myself to be a policy expert, but you know, again, I th I think the point is I was always really excited to to speak, and uh, and I got involved with drama. And drama said, "Hey, you have a voice. Here's a way to use it." And you learn a lot of lessons from doing theater. Have you have you ever done anything on stage not, in high school? Uh, not in high school. I did spend twelve years doing stand-up comedy in New York City, which is a whole other nightmare. But. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I always wanted to do stand-up, and then I tried it once when I was seven years old. I was on a cruise with my family, and there was a kind of adults-only nightclub. It wasn't really, you were able to get in if you were younger, but I was the only person there under maybe 40. And they had an open mic, and I kept on, I kept on raising my hand to get on, and the, the host was saying, no, what the, what, the, what the hell is this kid doing? Yeah. And then finally, he just caved in and was like, all right, let's let the kid get up here. And? And I walk up there, and I drop a three-minute routine. I make a joke about my dad's penis. Uh, which was an interesting <laughs> experience. And the thing is, I did not know that while I was sitting alone in the front row, I, I snuck out of my room, my parents went to the club and I didn't see them. Wow. So, so I'm, uh, I'm out there, I'll, say, I'll send you the, the clip privately. Yeah. I'm out there and I'm <laughs> four foot three and, and everybody's drunk, so they think I'm a riot. So I think I'm a riot. And I just kept going and going to the point where the, the, the guy who was running the open mic was just looming behind me, waiting for me to be done. But I guess he just didn't want to grab the mic from a small child without looking kind of weird. Stand-up is probably best done once at seven years old and never again. So you're, <laughs> exactly. you're, you're doing all Everybody's right. had their 15 minutes of fame when they were seven on a cruise. Yeah, all right. So, so you were a theater kid. Um, anything else we should know about? Just like high school life, like high school life for sure. a kid in 2017, 2018. Like, what's it like? I'm, I'm not that old, but I ain't 17 <laughs> anymore. Well, you know, I, high school was really fun for me. I really enjoyed it on a social level. I was a shitty student. Uh, my test scores were always good, but my grades were awful because I never bothered to do homework. I thought I was too smart and cool for that. 
But um, I, I liked high school a lot because I, I never really subscribed to one social circle. I kind of hung out with a lot of people. You know, kids who were the stereotypical popular-y kids. You know, I was just the guy they knew that was funny. I would hang out with them sometimes. <clears throat> kids who were the stereotypical nerds. We would talk about movies and comic books, which I want to get into your comic yeah. book collection soon. <laughs> um, and but I'd say that my core group was the theater kids. Okay. I, I love my friends from drama. And um, it's really fun having a group of friends where you'll, you'll be hanging out on the weekend, shooting the shit, and then you'll get to school and either be falling in love with each other and making out on stage or killing each other on stage. You know, we just did Fiddler on the Roof, and I got uh-huh. to marry one of my best friends. It was really fun. <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar. Yeah, yeah. Fiddler. I am familiar with Fiddler. It's, it's a classic. Yeah, so, all right, so it sounds like a pretty normal childhood then, so far. I, I don't think someone like me can be created by a normal childhood, but it was a great childhood. I'm very happy. My parents divorced when I was 10, and I'm lucky enough to have four great parents. You know, I've got two brothers and a stepsister. It's a great group. When I, I'd like to think that, that I'm a pretty moral guy, and when I'm the shittiest person in a family, it's a great family. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, You have a stand-up comic in you. I can see it. Uh, hopefully it doesn't come out anytime soon. All right, so now bring me to that day earlier sure. this year. So... On February 14th, there was a, it was a regular day. It was actually a really nice day, and, and there was a period of time during the day that I always remember where I thought, today's going a little too well. Hmm. I was sitting reading John Walsh's book, uh, Tears of Rage, I believe, if you're familiar. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the title exactly, but I, I was a big fan, and, um, <coughs> and I was planning out a Valentine's Day gift for a girl that I really liked. Uh, she had a she had an endoscopy that day, and she was uh, she was on a lot of medicine. And I was going to give her cousin some gifts for her and have her bring it to her. And I made her a card that said, "I would have brought you this myself, but I didn't have the stomach for it." Uh, I, I printed see, out a you picture. Are a comic. I printed out a go. picture of her doctor and put it in the card and everything. <clears throat> and then I'm uh, we're in rehearsal for a musical we were doing, Yo Vikings, mm-hmm. which I'm sure nobody's ever heard of. I don't know it. And uh, I was we we had just finished up a song I was doing. And I realized, wait a second, I have to go pick up my brother. Because at Stoma Douglas School, it's out at 2.40, but the special needs kids are out at 2.10, so the parents could pick them up before the buses come. And my little brother has autism, and he's hanging out there with all of his friends in the ESE class. And by the way, the autistic scene at Stoma Douglas is awesome. Those kids are the best. Hmm. And... Um, does the school specialize in that? Is it like a magnet school for kids no. with autism or anything? No, but it, it has a great program with great teachers. Mm-hmm. And I actually went back to Parkland this weekend to see them off to homecoming. And boy, let me tell you, that squad is wild. I love them. <laughs> and um, my little brother, I, I don't want to brag, is kind of the ringleader over there. Um, and, and I went to go pick him up because on days like that, when my mom was at work, I would take him to drama and he would just hang out. And he really loved it because all the girls would give him attention. Yeah. And, you know, he's... He's a bit of a cocky little bastard, <laughs> and um, and I realized it, it's maybe two twenty, let's say, and I, we're halfway through the song, and I say I forgot to pick up Holden, so we finished the song, and I asked my teacher if I could go run and pick him up. Of course, she said yes, and I'm picking up Holden, and suddenly there's a fire alarm, and and, I, and that was a little scary because we were close to pickup, and I was with the special needs kids, some of whom were in wheelchairs, mm-hmm. some of whom were not, were you know a little physically disabled. And we had to go to the parking lot where the buses would come. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, no, what if, this fi- what if this is a real fire and I have to sit out here and make sure that nobody gets hit by a bus? There were teachers there, of course, but, you know, it's a public school. There are maybe two teachers for f- 10, 15 students who need a lot of help. Sure. So we're out there sitting in the parking lot, and there were, <clears throat> there were students out there from other classes nearby who, because, uh, again, this is a fire drill. 
there were students out there who were with us, and it was the ESE class, it was a couple of the nearby classes, and one of the kids jokingly said, it's a shooter. I said, dude, shut the fuck up. That's not cool. Because mm-hmm. how could that ever happen, right? And suddenly I see everybody running back inside, and the teacher says, get inside, get inside. And I said, oh, okay, it wasn't a real fire, and they want to get all the kids inside before the buses come. And then we're told to go in a room. And we're told to hide, get away from the window, and turn the lights off. And I say, okay, something's going on. And that experience was, was an interesting one because I was in the leadership room with a lot of the leadership students, which is a class that specializes in leadership. Yeah. And they plan prom and everything. It's sort of student government. And it was also the special needs kids because it was the nearest room. And some of the students, being nonverbal does not mean you can't make noise. And some of the students were yelling and, and wailing. Fortunately, they had shadows, and, and the special needs teachers at Douglas are fantastic, and we were able to keep everybody calm, but we didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. And we were there for a couple hours. And slowly, more details began to emerge. Now, I assume you're hearing gunfire, and no. No. Douglas is a huge school, and I wasn't. Now, mind you, I, I thought I heard gunfire, but when you're to- being told your school is getting shot up and you hear anything, you might think it's gunfire. Yeah. But... I'm sitting there, Holden, my little brother, has no idea what's going on. And, and slowly I realize, okay, there's a shooting. I heard, and people were whispering around the room, it was maybe 20 kids in the room, people saying 50 people are dead, two people are dead, one person is dead. It, 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 there were conflicting stories. I heard conflicting stories of who, was the sh- who the shooter was. I heard five different names, one of whom was somebody I knew. Somebody I knew would not pick up a weapon to harm a butterfly mm-hmm. because that's hysteria and, that, and that's natural and I understand it. Then I saw something that was a terrible exhibit of humanity, if you ask me, <clears throat> which was there was a Snapchat video going around that was that, with the caption, yo, with multiple O's, my school getting shot up. Mm-hmm. And it was a video of a dead teacher. Look, if you're going to film a, a shooting from inside a room so you can have evidence to show the police, good on you. If you're going to film a shooting in a room and say, yo, my school getting shot up and send it to everybody you know, that's pretty awful. Yeah. And, and when you're sitting there in a room not knowing what's going on and you see videos of people you know and love deceased and the, and the only video I saw was of somebody who had, I had cared about for many years. He was a mentor in my life. You start to realize that nothing is ever going to be the same again. Yeah. So well, let's pause for one sec cuz that we shouldn't gloss over that part where the social media component of this is so important cuz you guys all grew up on this and then you grow up hearing about school shootings all the time and I could I don't know who this kid is it doesn't matter I'm sure I'm sure he's a perfectly fine person or he or she I don't even know. but it's like you know doing that it's like it just it almost feels like oh that's the normal thing to do like there's a shooting like Put well, it on Snapchat, is, you, know? Well, you know? Several people I knew were just treating it like it was normal. I mean, not the shooting, but the fact that there was a video. And so, uh, I understand how some people might like to, not like, but, you know, understand having to see that because they need to understand what's going on. But I saw it and I said, how could you do that? This is somebody who is deceased and you're filming them to show, to send to all your friends. And that's a reflection of the social media era we're in where everything that's going on, you got to show everyone. So for how long were you actually in that room not knowing if you were going to be okay, not knowing what was happening? I think it was about two hours. Um, I could look at interviews I did days after and have a much better gauge, I forget. Yeah. But I would call it around two hours. And you know, when the SWAT team broke the door down, there was the big issue that there are students who are 
developmentally disabled in here who might not be able to put their hands up. And fortunately, one of the only good things you'll see from Broward's handling of the shooting was the SWAT team was very understanding and was very quick to help these students, which was good. But when that glass broke and the first thing that walked into a room was a, was a rifle, how were we supposed to know that that wasn't yeah. us taking our turn? But and I, everybody was texting their parents. Everybody, uh, the phone lines were kind of jammed because everybody in Parkland was making a call. I mean, it was Parkland. It was a city with, I don't even know how many people, but it, it, it's a small town where there's one high school. Is there one high school? There's around one high school. Yeah. And we, I mean, nobody should be equipped for this, but we weren't. Yeah, had you guys been taught at all? Like, are they teaching in high school like what to do if this actually does happen, if a shooter sure. comes to a school? We had the discussion of having a code red drill. We had had long discussions about dealing with a shooter, but we had never participated in a code red drill. <clears throat> at least not while I was at school. I used to skip school a lot. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about uh, the makeup of Parkland, because you mentioned something interesting that's kind of like sure. a, a little liberal Par- area in Parkland Florida. is a pretty liberal area. It's not you know, homogeneous when it comes to being liberal. You know, there's a lot of different perspectives, but the majority of people in Parkland are pretty <coughs> liberal and, and pretty classic liberal. And, um, and that's why you'll see a lot of the activism to come out of Stoneman Douglas was less, you know, let's, let's I don't know, I, it was very gun control related. Yeah, so let's, we'll get to that in, in a little bit because obviously so much has happened and the spotlight that has been, you know, put on you guys and everything else and, and several of you have stepped into it and I think there's, there's probably good parts of that and bad parts of that. I think that's probably why you're here right now. Double-edged sword. Yeah. Um, okay, so it ends, now what? Uh, you know, they, they tell you, all right, you can walk out of this room. I mean, sure. I can't well, imagine the, so the we change ran, in life. We ran with our hands up. We sat outside for a bit. Um, I was able to go on a city bus with my little brother's class to the Marriott, which is the <coughs> hotel, only hotel in Parkland. And so they weren't letting parents come? No, to parents were coming to pick us up at the hotel. Okay. But there were a lot of different ways students got out of the school, a lot of different places they went. Some kids I know just ran, um, which is understandable. Yeah. Normally when there's a mass shooting nearby, you run. And um, my brother and I were at the Marriott Hotel, and our father picked us up. It took us over an hour to get home because, as I'm sure you can understand, the streets were very jammed. Yeah. I mean, after the shooting, Parkland was a no-man's land. It, it, this wasn't Mad Max anarchy where everybody was wearing leather spikes, huh. but it was a no-man's land. There was, it, it, it was as if time and, and space had been suspended. The rules of f- f- physics and matter didn't really exist. It was eerie. It was seven to, days, at least for me, that was when that period of really surreal fear existed that, that nothing felt real. And um, the, the news was there. There was, you know, the most we got was somebody at the Sun Sentinel talking about our production of Fiddler on the Roof. The, um, did, did you in that period, and I'm sure it's very hard to even remember it clearly, did you have a real chance to mourn, to figure out what happened? Um, I don't know, you can maybe let me know how close you were to maybe some of the students. Because it seems like, and I think this was part of the problem with the way we deal with these things, is that we go from the incident to immediately, especially on social media, just attacking each other and destroying each other. Then you guys all get thrust into the spotlight and it's like, whoa, this would be hard on, on an adult, you know, impossibly hard. 
Meanwhile, you have these kids who are now out there talking about these things. These kids need to mourn, need to figure out what's going on with life and, and find some reality and decency. So I, I think that there's really no formula for recovering for, from a mass sh shooting, especially one at a school. I mean, enough have happened that they're starting to develop a precedence, which is a horrible thing. But there's really nowhere to look. You can... I could have hidden away, I could have locked myself in my room for weeks, and maybe that would have been the right thing to do. I could have, <clears throat> I didn't know what to do. And my way of coping has always been doing something. I had dealt with some tragic loss this past year, and I had, the, the, there were some really dark things that happened to people that I loved. And the way I always handled them was by doing something. I never liked to have a clear head, because while I think it's important to process your pain and deal with it, I also think that the, if I if something like that happens and I do nothing, I'm never going to forgive myself. I, I had survivor guilt. Why why should I have left that day? Yeah, there were 15 year old girls that were murdered, and I made it out. And if I could have pressed a button to trade my life for theirs, it, it wouldn't have even been, hmm. Well, maybe I should say goodbye to people. Maybe I should think about this. No, I would have broken my finger pressing it too hard. So, what made me deserve life when? other people who did nothing wrong, people more innocent, more kind than I am, didn't get to make it out. And I realized, while I'm alive, and, and one of my mentors wasn't, Scott Beagle, one of the nicest guys I've ever met, he's the reason that I'm a snarky little asshole, I developed that from him. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't make it out there, and, and he's somebody who changed young people's lives by making them better and making them more proud of themselves, so, so what makes me, what, what has me, deserving of this. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a very religious or spiritual person, so I, I, don't, I didn't think there was some great plan that got me out of school, but I think that I had a responsibility. I had a responsibility to do right by the people we lost and to do what I thought would make the world a better place while they can't. Because there were marriages that didn't happen, there were people who would have had children and, and, and that didn't get, I don't know, it's, it's a horrible thing to think, but at the end of the day, uh, lives ended and I still had mine. So I said, after this shooting, what I'm gonna do is something. And I, I was a, you know, I've been a big liberal most of my life and, I, and I've always been an advocate for gun control. I was a big debater of other students after the shooting in Las Vegas where I said, nobody needs these. We're, we're in a point in our society where we're advanced enough that nobody needs an assault weapon to take care of themselves. Look at the, look at the, the way these guns are made, we can defend ourselves with handguns. My father has multiple in the house. He's a reserve police officer. He was Miami Shores for a while. I didn't. Uh, I instantly said, the thing we can do here <clears throat> is stop folks like the shooter at my school from getting these weapons. Because this is a 19-year-old who, if he had spent five minutes with a psychologist, would have been sent to a therapist, not a gun store. Yeah, okay, so let's, before we get specifically too far down the, the gun road here, which obviously we're gonna touch on, Okay, you guys are trying to mourn. You know, you're having survivor guilt. All of these things, I'm sure, just in in your family and your brother and everything else. Just, I can't even imagine. Then the media, because I think this is we have to hit media stuff before we get to the gun part. The media then descends. What was that like? I mean, I assume everybody and their brother was trying to reach out to all of you guys. They were putting you guys on TV. I mean, I probably even that very day. Um, what was that like for you guys? Or for you? I, you know, the whole, our whole situation with the media, whether it be anything from CNN to Fox News to Ellen, was a double-edged sword. Because on, on the one hand, there are bodies that are warm and we're out here on TV. And 
in, in retrospect, I might have done that differently. I'm not sure. On the other hand, I couldn't let this be like Sandy Hook, for example. Yeah. I couldn't let this be people coming into film, crying mothers, talking about how bad these guns are and leave. I wanted to get out there and say, no. Okay, this, how many of these do we need before we do something? I, don't, I didn't want people to see Parkland as a place where everybody was crying and everybody was throwing a pity party. I wanted par- people to see Parkland as a place where a terrible tragedy happened and the city stood up and said, no. We're not going to be like these other places. We are going to be a catalyst. I mean, <clears throat> before, before Stoneman Douglas, I would, send, I would hear the word Sandy Hook in a room and everybody would get quiet and it would be weird. I couldn't have that be Stoneman Douglas. I, the, this place that was my school, I loved my school. I was a big school spirit fella. It, it was about to become a statistic. It was about to become that one dark thing that somebody will make a joke about or somebody will say something bad about or really anything. I, so I, I got out there and said, no. And so many people got out there and said, this cannot be another example of everybody everybody crying. Yeah, We're not here to cry. We're here to tell you what we can do to make this a better world. Were there people, I assume parents, advisors, whoever, that were kind of guiding you through the media part of this? Because there were so many strange moments where it seemed like... Look, I, I said to you right before, I don't want to make this about any specific student, especially, and I don't want to throw anyone out on the bus, but when we'd see someone like David Hogg, who obviously is very public now, uh, you know, saying things that, that didn't quite seem right or, or talking about laws and all this stuff, like going from just surviving to suddenly advocacy with almost no space in between, uh, you know, is well, I think is the general dangerous. Idea, I think the general idea of going right to advocacy, while it might not have been our best call to immediately go to it was these cameras are only here for so long mm-hmm. and we couldn't have them leave there's that double-edged sword exactly yeah. so do we do we wait our respectful time and then go out and advocate or will people not care mm-hmm. and at, I think I stand by advocacy I'm not sure <clears throat> I think on a moral level I might not but on a but generally I think that while everybody was looking we had to say let's let's look at what we really want to look at here yeah these, like, give these families their space. Were, were any of you guys afraid that you were being looked at as experts suddenly, where as horrific as what happened to you was, it doesn't make you an expert either in law or in guns or any of those things. Like, you can very eloquently, as you're doing right now, tell me your story, tell me what you think, all of those things. But especially at the beginning, I'm sure you know way more now, you don't know everything, nobody knows everything, and they were throwing a bunch of 17-year-olds out there as if they were experts on all of these things, and I think that also added to some of the, the tumult around everything. Well, at the time, it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, I was an expert. I, I, felt, I felt phenomenal. I, I was somebody that everybody was looking to as if, I, as if I knew everything, and as I said before, that was what I wanted. Yeah. And, and it wasn't a good feeling. I, I'll be honest with you, some things about it felt good. Most of it felt like... Terrible. It's interesting. You just said it's awesome, and it wasn't a good feeling, well, which it, probably sums it up, I guess. Yeah, it was awesome to me that I got to. The, the, I spent my whole life watching people talk about laws and watching people talk about politics, and now I got to say this, and my word got to be respected. But every time I went out there, I thought there are people dead, and it's it's just it's a it's a it's a moral qualm. Mm-hmm. Am I out here? I'm I'm doing this because I believe in it and I'm doing this because I don't want the world to lose people again. Uh, Nobody deserves to be shot. Nobody at all. Nobody who's a good person deserves to be shot. So... So so I... it It was difficult for me because on the one hand it was this amazing feeling of 
here's my voice, everybody's listening, let me tell you what you all need to hear. And what everybody needed to hear was we need to pass gun laws, it's been enough. If, if, if people did nothing after Columbine, I would have understood because that was supposed to be an anomaly. I'm sure you remember mm-hmm. that was of a shocker. And then Stillman Douglas happened and it was more of an another, not a whoa. Mm-hmm. So, so it, felt, it, it, it felt great that people were caring. That was, the, that was what I would say was the awesome part was that I was afraid everybody, would, everybody in the country would feel helpless and cry and be done. Mm-hmm. But it was amazing to see that the country was saying, maybe there's something we can do here. Maybe we can make some change. And the thing that was awful was I was, I was going from news hits to, to memorial services. Yeah, so you've had a sort of interesting evolution about all this, and it, and it sort of leads to where we're going to end, which is what you're doing now, which is pretty awesome. Um, so, all right, you're part of the, now you're part of the media machine. You guys are trying to figure out what can you do. I assume that's sort of how March for Our Life started, and if I'm not mistaken, it started in your house, right? started in my bathroom. Yeah. I was, um, I was <laughs> coming out of the shower, I was putting on my Ghostbusters PJs. It was a Slimer. It wasn't... Old school Ghostbusters. Yes, of course, oh, of course. All right. I, um, we could talk about the new Ghostbusters maybe after this part. Um, <laughs> How much hate do you want to get online? <laughs> I, uh, look, I'll tell you this. Everybody in that cast is incredibly talented. I, I didn't like the movie very much, but there's really nobody who was in it that I think was not, is not an incredibly funny person. But anyway, I, um, it started Sidebar, in my yeah. home, and, and I got a lot of my friends together. Some, uh, I called everyone who I knew was intelligent and well-spoken and was willing to put their time to grieve aside to demand action because you know, I felt like it was in some ways a public service because people are grieving and we're out here saying we're going to put that aside as, as much as I wanted to cry every day and mind you I really wanted to and I, I did a lot I knew that I had to put that aside I had to do something so I got everybody that I knew could do something too mostly my drama friends because I knew that they could speak mm-hmm. and we all got together at my house and said well, what do we do We've, we, this whole this whole country, people on both sides are all mourning together. How can we get everybody on both sides together to do something? Now, mind you, that didn't happen. <laughs> Getting people on both sides didn't really happen. Yeah, um, that we, can be a tough one. It's and it is a tough one, and it will always be a tough one. But it's something that needs to be done. And and uh, you know, from from my home, we were sleeping two hours a night. I would go entire days only eating one protein bar, not even realizing we were so, it was such a tornado that we were all, we all kind of forgot what it was like to be a normal person. So you come up with the idea for March for Our Lives. Now get us to that day and what was, was it supposed to be, what, what were the actual original intentions beyond let's not forget about this? Original intentions were let's get gun control passed. And I'm still a big let's get gun control pass guy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to say, everybody out here is saying we should do this. Let's get everyone together. Let's, let's get a, a big march together where people say, I want, I'm coming all the way out here. I'm standing out here today to demand this. And, and seeing everybody together was amazing. I, um, get, getting up on the stage and seeing all those people I, I didn't care about the being in front of them. I mean, I was a drama kid. Uh, I stood in front of people and talked for the past five years. 
But I saw all those people and I said, these people believe in something. Mm -hmm. These people come from different places. These people are all completely different, but they're all together because they believe in one thing. And that was magical. And I don't use the word magical very often. I think it's cliche, but that was magical. And it was, it was, it was amazing to see. But from the beginning of our advocacy to the march, it was, it was a lot of personalities together and we were able to make it through the pain we felt together. Mm-hmm. I mean, so often people said, well, why are you guys, you know, your school got shot up a month ago, your school got shot up three weeks ago, why are you smiling? And I said, well, I, at least from my own personal perspective, the teacher that I was dear friends with that I lost, Scott wouldn't want me to cry. Scott would want me to do something. Scott would want me to do what I believed in. He wasn't a very political guy. He, he, after the shooting, he probably wouldn't have focused on any politics. He would have focused on getting everybody at Douglas to feel better, to laugh, to smile. But if I believed in something and I wanted to advocate for it, I knew that if he were here, he'd say, well, go do it. So the time I spent, I was sitting at his memorial and I was crying and my, I, I, was, I was in the dirt, I was all snotty. I, I tried to wipe my face with my dirty hands and I, it was what many would consider the low point in a movie when the mm-hmm. person feels like they've lost everything. And then I thought about it, and if Scott Yoda behind me as a ghost, which he and I used to talk about, actually, <laughs> he and I used to talk about Yoda-ing, uh-huh. um, if he Yoda'd behind me, and he would say, Cameron, do something, you must. He used to talk to me in Yoda voice a lot. And even, I thought we were going to get your Yoda impression there. It's not going to happen. No. <laughs> um, somebody else has the exclusive on that one. Oh, okay, fair but, enough. Um, no, there were points where Scott was my teacher in fifth grade, and he, he Yoda voiced me while I was asking him a genuine question, which frustrated me a lot, uh-huh. but that's for another time. Yeah. I could do a three-hour interview on him, but he would have said do something. So, so when we were all smiling together, when we were all laughing together, it was because I knew that somebody that I loved would have wanted me to, and we had each other. That's the thing. If I, w- if I was advocating for gun control alone, it wouldn't have worked. Not only because I couldn't have done it alone, I'm not good enough to do it alone, but also because we were each other's lifeline. When, I was, when, when everything seemed awful and everything seemed like the world was this dark, terrible place, I had my friends around me to say, we got, we're here for you. We've got this together. And I was, you know, some people's shoulder, many people were my shoulder. I'm more emotional than many. I'm a theater student, so more people had to help me than I need to help them. Yeah. And so, so beyond the emotional part and getting everybody together, and as you said, you're still a gun control advocate and all that, I sense that part of what happened around March for Our Lives was you saw things getting bizarrely political or, or more than what perhaps you or you guys wanted. Is that fair to say? I think what March for Our Lives should have it's, it's a political issue I think, the, I think the way it should have come off and I think this is what everybody I worked with believes I know it for a fact is that we're kids who don't <clears> want to get shot that's what we are at the end of the day we are kids who are out here saying we don't want to die and back then I thought that if you didn't believe in my gun control beliefs you didn't care if kids died I learned that that's not the case but that, just, that's a pretty interesting evolution for someone at 17 to have within you know five I, or six months well, I, I spoke to people who disagreed with me and I learned that they want the country to be a better place you know, they, they, we might not agree on how. We might think, I might think that their views are horse shit, but every, we all agree on basically 90% of things. You know, I'm sure there are plenty of political things you and I will disagree on, but at the end of the day, Todd McFarlane is one of the most gifted Spider-Man writers we of all We do time. agree on that, Did yes. you ever do anything with DC? 
I'm more of a Marvel guy, but I, I had a pretty good Batman collection for a while. Nightwing is my favorite superhero. Oh, yeah? I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah, yeah, I you think I think in comic books they're very afraid to make real change, and Nightwing actually was able to make it through that. You know, if a, if a Robin became his own superhero, normally that would only be for ten issues, and then he'd go back. But Nightwing actually made that jump. I encourage you all to read. <laughs> but anyway, going back, we we can focus yeah. on McFarlane Spider-Man from two ninety eight to three thirty five. The, I mean, the just, idea of Venom is brilliant. Yeah, but, yeah. And I saw the trailer for the movie. We'll talk about that right. off camera. Um, <laughs> that sounds good. Tom Hardy's gifted. So. So the way the way people should have seen us and the way I failed really in the messaging because I was so deeply involved with it was we just don't want to get killed. And quickly, because of the perfect storm of everything, it became left versus right. And and I don't think anybody in my group wanted that. I, I don't think anybody in my group wants that at all. But it's in one way the media's, the media's portrayal. It's in one way my personal inability to express it correctly and another way, my arrogance, because I was pretty arrogant. I, I mean that, in a, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I mean, everybody else I worked with in March for Our Lives was a, a kid who wanted to help the world, but I was a cocky little son of a bitch. And that and that translated a lot, because I said, "I'm right." That's the thing. Mm-hmm. I'm right. Everything I say about gun control is completely right. So so why, why don't why aren't you listening to me? Because I'm I'm obviously in the right here. I, everybody else, again, was, was basically saying, I don't want to die. Here's how I think it could work. But I said, I'm right politically. This is my political movement. Listen to my politics. That's my fault. And that's okay. I don't blame myself. I was a kid who lost friends, and I thought that this is what we needed, and I still do. But the, my, my big error, my, what's the, what's the word from a tragic hero that's their flaw, Hamartia, hubris? Well, this is your hubris, I suppose. It, uh, Let's call it the hubris. I, again, I didn't take AP Lang or AP Lit. <laughs> I can tell you my favorite tragic heroes. I love tragic heroes. But my hubris was, and again, I could be interpreting this wrong, I just thought I was right. <laughs> I thought that anybody who didn't agree with me, because I was so right, wanted kids to die. One percent of the... No, I wouldn't say that. My guess is that three percent of the country doesn't care when kids die. Three percent just says, not my kid. Or, you know, it's not where I am. But the rest of the country doesn't want kids to die. And, you know, I learned about that, that family in Texas where the mom and the dad both carry weapons because they want to protect their family. Mm-hmm. I learned about the people in, in everywhere who, who want to protect their families. I have guns in my house. And while I believe in an assault weapons ban or at least much more restrictive laws, if you want to hurt my autistic brother and I have a gun, you're in trouble. So when you see someone like David Hogg, and I'm only mentioning him because he's been so vocal, and you know I try to talk about ideas and not people, but when you see someone like him tweeting all of these things, but you know, I don't want to get an exact quote crossed up here, but to the, in the effect, if you don't agree with me, you want dead kids. Republicans want dead kids. Marco Rubio doesn't want to save anybody. All, all of these things, you now realize that's just not the way to do that. That it's not true and it's not, it's not actually effective. The reason I criticize myself and not my friends is because I know David. David is a dear friend of mine. I've known him for a couple years, but I've only known him really well since the shooting. Mm-hmm. I had a class with him once. He was a nice guy. Everything David does, and I know we're not talking specifics, but I'll just use David as an example because much like everybody else in March for Our Lives, everything David does, he does because he wants the country to be a better place. 
he and I don't always see perfectly eye to eye on what exactly to do. But every time I see something he tweets that I don't like, and I, 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 look, I think about it and I say, I've spent hours with David. I've known him. I, I know him so incredibly well because we have this dark, tragic, terrible bond that was really created after the worst case scenario. But when David says something that I don't agree with, he's saying it because he doesn't want another kid to die. So, you know, messaging with everybody in the group is occasionally not really in sync. We agree, we disagree on things sometimes. But if I thought that people in March for Our Lives, like David or, or anyone, was in this for the wrong reasons, I would be, in, I would instantly call them out. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. Yeah, unfortunately, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and I, I don't want to smirch his intentions. Well, uh, I, I believe you. Our, our I believe you that his intentions are are pure. I, of course, I believe that. David's a guy who cares so deeply about the world around him and will do whatever it takes to make it a better place. But it's funny that you say the road to hell is paved with good intentions because our summer tour where we went around advocating for more voter registration and more accessible voting around the country was called Road to Change. And there was a counter-protester at one of our events that said, more like the road to hell. And I said, hey, that's not very nice. This Rubin Report interview is brought to you by ExpressVPN. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You're being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, but they often sell it to other corporations who want to profit from your information. That's why I decided to take back my privacy using ExpressVPN. Both my crew and I travel often. I'm probably traveling on the road right now, and we're always connecting to public Wi-Fi on the go, putting our information at risk. We're no stranger to hackers from stolen iCloud passwords to attempts to break into social media accounts and much more. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the perfect solution. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing history by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Whether you're looking to add a layer of protection to your online shopping information, or if you're trying to watch videos about free speech in a country where speech isn't so free, ExpressVPN is here to help. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Best of all, turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. Securing your data is so easy, there's no reason not to try it. Plus, protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at ExpressVPN dot com slash Ruben. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Ruben for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Ruben to learn more. And now back to the interview. Okay, so after the march, during the march, before the march, this thing is just becoming more and more political. As you said, you guys are getting up there and you want to, you know, sort of have your moment, but there are certain issues you don't understand. Were politicians reaching out to you? Uh, I know that you know Kyle Kashuv has talked to Marco Rubio a couple of times. I mean, how how deep did this go in terms of reaching every part of American society? Sure, we um, we reached out to a lot of people, and a lot of people reached out to us. There were a lot of conservatives that we we were speaking to about the issue. I have a couple friends who went to gun groups to talk about it. Sat down with some very big gun advocates 
in their areas, not really in the country, but notable where they were, to talk about the issue. And I, the, I know that the rest of my group was really interested in opening up and talking about this. Again, I was the shitty one in March for Our Lives. Um, I, I wanted to stir some shit. You know, I wanted to cause trouble. I wanted to make, I wanted to own the conservatives the same way a lot of conservatives want to own the libs. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what it's about right now. Mm-hmm. People, people play games where they're trying to one-up each other. And, you know, I just, I was trying to do that. I was trying to make politicians I didn't like look bad as opposed to say, what can we do? Yeah. When I went up there and I was- and Were, were I, your folks or anyone saying, you know, maybe ease up on Twitter or like, you know, just, just because you're gonna get, no matter what, even if everything you said was factually right and came from the right place and all that, just the amount of hate you're gonna get while you're still a young person in sure. mourning so cannot be fun. My mom is, her, her sole existence in the world is to make everybody in the world happy and love each other. So she said to me, be nice and loving. My dad, who is a bit of a political advocate himself, agrees with me on a lot of things. And sometimes he would tell me to ease up. Sometimes he would tell me to, you know, be, be a little bit rougher. But he also said, and, and this is why I think my parenting from my mom, stepdad, dad, stepmom was so great, was they said, do what you think is right and don't let people put their hooks in you. <clears throat> and I did. I, le- I, let, I let people manipulate me a bit because I, I thought that they were kindred spirits. But, you know, my parent, I'm lucky enough to have parents who say, believe what you believe. If I, my, you know, my parents are all liberal. But if I came home and said, I'm, if I came home with a Trump 2020 hat, which I do not expect to do, <laughs> unless some drastic change happens in my life. Yeah, although they, I know you're not thrilled with the Democrats at the moment. I'm not thrilled with Democrats at the moment, but I'm not thrilled with Democrats at the moment because they're not being good Democrats, not because they're Democrats. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we'll get to that. I, um, if I came home and I told my parents that I would vote for the opposite of what they would vote for, they would say, if you're doing it because you think it's right, you're going to do it. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. So where do you stand on gun control generally? Because I think what happened was they, at the event, at March for Our Lives, there were a lot of people getting up there and they were saying things that implied, and I think this is the way a lot of people on the right took it, it's not about sensible gun control. This is ultimately about taking away all the guns. And that, of course, is the fear of sure. most of the people on the right. And there were a couple of the students, there was one young girl, I, I don't remember who, said, we're gonna start with bump stocks, but we're coming for all the guns, or something to that effect. And that, that feeds right into the people on the right who go, all right, well, now we're not yeah. gonna talk, you we're guys not are, gonna you negotiate. You kids who like better laws, you guys are Mao Zedong. Exactly, and then because of that, then the people on the left and, and all you guys go, well, all right, see, now they don't want to talk at all, so we're not going to talk, and then you end up sort of exactly where we're at at the yeah. moment. It's, uh, this is, somebody told me this the other day. It's a brilliant point. The left and the right attack each other's worst arguments, mm-hmm. and that does nothing for us. But when it comes to my personal stance on guns, there's some, there are some differing opinions amongst my friends from March for Our Lives, but we all, we all agree with some similar things. Personally, <clears throat> I think that as long as people who are responsible can carry concealed firearms particularly handguns in the country, in many situations, the country is a safer place. I also think that there is not a strong vetting process for people to purchase these firearms, and a lot of people just get guns, and a lot of these people are not the good guy with the gun. Because I think the good guy with the gun argument is just a hasty generalization. I understand it in some ways, because I intend to concealed carry when I'm an adult, because I intend to have a family, and I intend to shoot anybody who tries to kill my family, and I, I assume that, that even that position right there probably puts you on the outs with a lot of 
a lot of your crew. Well, anyway, the outs right? conceptually, you know, we all respect each other's opinions. So yeah. if somebody in March for Our Lives, and this is nobody in March for Our Lives, but if somebody said, I want to eliminate all guns, I'd say, okay, well, let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my friends respect me for, for what I think, and I respect them. Some, it's, diffic- it's, it's a difficult thing to respect people who disagree with you for those things. Do you find that, you know, guys and girls your age are able to have these conversations without killing each other? Uh, that was a terrible choice of words. Without, sure, but without I being at each other's throats I think more than adults are right now? Is that possible? Because that seems to be a through line with you, that you're friends with a lot of people of, of different opinions. I think we want to. I think that a lot of people who want to aren't taking the right steps because they're saying, yes, we can, we can come to some common ground if you agree with me. And th- th- there's, a, there's a want out there, and that's something I'm really interested in because I come from a generation that I believe puts principles and morals over money and political victories. And I think that we've actually got a bright future. Now, people will call me an insane Bobby Kennedy moron for saying <laughs> that we have a bright future, but I think we do. I think we need to destigmatize the conversation. I have a lot of friends who, who before seven months ago, I would have thought were racist, sexist, bigot, homophobes who want the country to explode and want to destroy everybody who isn't exactly like them. And then I learned maybe that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of friends who would have thought that I was some leftist beta cuck shill who, who wanted, who wanted uh, the communists to take everybody's guns and kill them. And then they learn maybe that's not the case. I think our generation really is moving in a good direction when it comes to smart conversations. I just think we need a bit of a social revolution there. Not a huge social revolution. Mm-hmm. I love social revolutions. This isn't a, a big revolution. Cool it, Beatles. You don't think we're but, LA Miz level yet? We're not LA Miz. Yeah. We're not hearing the people sing the song of Angry Men yet. Yeah. But we, there, we need, some, we need, a, we need a, a movement towards respecting each other because... Look, before all of this, if I could have gotten rid of the right, I would have. And I know people who would have gotten rid of the left if they could have, but it's not going to happen. The parties might evolve over time. I mean, they the parties are The parties are flipping in a lot of ways, well, too. I, well, think about this. The, the party of Lincoln is the only party that currently... Well, not the... Democrat, there are some Democrats who are like this, but the majority of people who are running as admitted white supremacists are part of the party of Lincoln. Mm-hmm. So a lot, of, a lot of switches happen there. Um, I mean, you've got some really awful rhetoric out there from folks like Candace Owens who will say who will talk about the left plantation. Look, I think identity politics are dangerous, but calling saying that the real racists are the Democrats is a hasty generalization. I think that I think there's actually some truth to it. I, well, there's a difference between the the, the liberals and the left. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> now you're, now you're yeah. speaking my but, language. But the thing is, you, you can't pigeonhole them together. Mm-hmm. Is pigeonhole the right word for that? Yeah. Okay, you can't pigeonhole them together. I'm a liberal. But I think that all men and women are created equal and need to be respected equally. Whereas people farther to the left will say, as a, as a white, cisgender, heterosexual male, I don't have the right to say any of that. Look, you, a friend of mine, Michael Skolnick, who I've worked with before, said something to me that I really appreciated, which was, you can't judge somebody by the hand they're dealt. You judge them by how they elect to play that hand. Mm-hmm. People farther to the left will judge me by the hand I'm dealt. I grew up in a pretty well-off family. I had a pretty easy childhood. I could have walked around my neighborhood without fearing death, which is something that some of my friends I made in Chicago were not able to have. But they'll say that my opinion is less valid than anybody's because I don't deal with the struggles they do. I have an incredible amount of empathy 
for people who are not as privileged as I am. I believe that white privilege exists. I don't believe it's uh, as systematic or, or um, really structural as people say it is. I don't think the government exists to oppress people. But white privilege, I believe, exists. I believe that there are certain situations where I will be, where I will be in a better place because I'm a white, cisgender, heterosexual male. Again, it's not this large oppressive force that people treat it like, but it's something we need to address. And that's the, that's the real thing I'm talking about recently, which is we can find common ground on these issues and not try to push each other away. Mm-hmm. Because in my view, in my view, white privilege exists. Mm-hmm. And people will say, well, no, because um, in many situations on the SAT, African-American students were given points and Asian students were, were deducted points. And, and that proves that, that, well, I got myself into an... Yeah, well, I, I don't want to, we, we don't have to go too far down, down that yeah. road because we could have a whole other conversation on that because I, I, I actually don't agree with you on that, but, but that's the point of this. I yeah, mean, exactly. That, that's the point, and, and I'm still learning, you're still learning. It, it, it's kind of a beautiful thing, actually. Yeah. I'm, I'm 17, I can hardly spell. I'm not yeah. the expert on shit. <laughs> and that's actually the point of the new podcast I'm putting out yeah. pretty soon. It's called Cameron Knows Nothing. Uh, do you watch Game of Thrones? I do. Look, your grit told me. Yeah. <laughs> I know nothing. And it's true. I, you know, I have my own personal views on abortion. <clears throat> I actually, I watched a video of yours. Where you and I have this pretty much the same exact view. I'm a 20 weeks guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also have not taken enough science classes. I also do not, I have not conversed with enough women who have had abortions. My opinions mean jack shit, but I'm allowed to have them. You know, it's, I'm a 17-year-old boy, so there's only so much I could truly say about pro-lifers, pro-choice, but I'm allowed to say it. Yeah. And, you know, and Cameron knows nothing. I'm going to tell you guys what I think, but it doesn't mean it's right. You know? Yeah. Where I'm do you li- think that attitude comes from within you? Because it seems to me that I think a lot of what's happening right now is I see adults that are now afraid to say what they think. And, you know, they think that the mob's going to come after them, which is completely legit. They think it might hurt their job opportunities both sides or, have a mob. or things like that. Yeah, the mob, whichever, whichever way it is, right? I mean, I think but we see boycotts on both sides, and I think a lot of misguided anger often. Uh, but I think most people need a little bit more of what you just did there, which is, I just am what I am. You know, maybe convince me of some other stuff, but I'm trying to learn here. I don't want to hurt anybody. You know, I, I, don't, I want the government to crack down on guns. That doesn't mean I want the government to oppress you. I believe that there's a certain amount of time somebody should have access to an abortion, and I think that abortions should be more accessible just for a certain amount of time. But I don't want to kill babies, and I don't want to oppress women. I want the world to be a better place. You want the world to be a better place. Um, I don't know about about you know anybody up in the booth, but they seem really nice. Yeah, they're pretty good. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, Todd McFarlane. I hand selected these people. Yeah. Exactly. Todd yeah. McFarlane wants the world to be a better place. David Hogg wants the world to be a better place. Uh, Jordan Peterson wants the world. We all, pretty much all of us do. I'm actually glad you mentioned Jordan Peterson because you know I'm on tour with him right now. And one of the things that I find is, first off, I meet a ton of people your age. I'd say the bulk of the people that are coming there are young people, probably probably right around your age, 17, 18, into, into their probably early 30s. And it's male, female, gay, straight, black, white, the whole thing. But it's very obvious to me that he's providing some level of guidance that somehow it seems that your generation kind of missed. Now, it sounds like your, your folks are pretty great and your extended family and all that, but do you sense that there is some missing piece here that partly 
I don't know that there's like some, I, I discussed this last week with Peter Thiel, that there was some disconnect between the baby boomers, my parents' age, and that, that my guys, the Gen X people, we never had our moment or something, and then we've sort of handed it off to you guys, the millennials. And that there's Gen the, X. I'm Gen X. Oh, I'm Gen Z, actually. You're Gen I'm not Z? A millennial. You're, wow. When millennials did, are three or four years older than I am. All right. <laughs> Oh man, we're all yeah, in trouble. I don't, I don't want to okay, feel bad here. But that we handed it off to the to the generation of people who grew up with with cell phones, immediate access to to knowledge. Which cell has, phones are the best and worst thing to ever happen to us. Yeah. If I want to get to a hospital, I can get to a hospital much easier with a cell phone. If I want to look up a fact, forgetting the fact that facts are difficult right now, because it's <laughs> yeah. a fact that facts are difficult to find. That is a fact. Um, that. You know, I can do it, but also I, I've before all of this, I was very, very obsessed with my own image. Not because I thought I had a good one, but because I wanted it to be good. Mm-hmm. I, I was posting things online because I wanted people to think I had a cool life. I mean, I did. I, I had a great life, but I, I wanted people to know that. And and it, it the hyperconnectivity of social media, which is a term I stole from many Ben Platt interviews where he's talking about his musical Dear Evan Hansen. I don't want him to see this and think I'm stealing from him. The hyperconnectivity of social media. Is, um, is, is a good and bad thing. But I think the problem here, and I think that you know, folks like Jordan, I'm a big fan of Jordan, I'm a big fan of yours, don't get a big head. Um, <laughs> people, people like you guys, one of the things that you advocate for is, is conversation. And people on the right, young people on the right that I know and I'm friends with, they want to own the lips. Mm-hmm. This is all about proving them wrong and saying like facts don't care about your feelings. I agree, facts by definition don't care about your feelings, but there's also logic which is kind of the middle between the two, really. And that's the interpretation and the insight and the fact where, you know, if we, if we only based everything in facts, which a lot of young people on the right do, we're just talking about the past. You can't mm-hmm. look at the future and you can assess facts, but a lot, of, a lot of young people on the right want to prove people wrong. And a lot of young people on the left, I've seen, want to, want to, make, pe- want to make people who disagree with them look worse. It's mm-hmm. all about making the other look worse. Mm-hmm. The right wants to show that the left is a bunch of commies and the left wants to show that the right's a bunch of fascists. And that's a waste of time. That is, a, that is what is harming our country right now. I think Donald Trump's rhetoric is dangerous and harms our country, but Trump is, is, the, is a symptom of something greater. Like President Obama said when he made his return that made all of my liberal friends think Jesus came back, <laughs> which is, you know, Trump, Trump is the result of a country where the people who love Trump are loving him more than ever and the people who hate Trump are hating him more than ever because we are divided. Mm-hmm. You know, our rhetoric is, is, driving, is driving everybody in different directions. That's why you see the rise of democratic socialism. And that's why you see the rise of more and more people coming out and saying things that are stupid because they have the First Amendment right to do it. Look, if you say something I don't like, I will defend it with my life. I will defend with my life your right to say it. But people are mixing being not PC and being a jerk. And, and right now we're driving apart. We need to come together, stop attacking each other. Both sides are equally as guilty. C- certain sides in certain situations are obviously guiltier, but yeah. it, it's, 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 it's bullshit. So do you sense a little more flexibility on the ability to talk to people on the right than on the left? Because you know that that's been a sort of big part of what's going on with me. Like I get invited to go to these 
conservative things in Turning Point USA, and I talk about being gay married and I'm pro-choice and against the death penalty and all of these things that are thought of as leftist things, but they invite me, we have a great time, I take a zillion selfies with the kids after and all that stuff, where there doesn't seem to be that flexibility over there. Now, I, I don't want to harp on this because I get your greater point, which is we got to get past this. Sure, nonsense. but it's, it's worth talking about. But I, I do see something on one side, especially with young people, that has become more corroded, I would say, than, uh, than on the other Here's side. Here's what I'll say. I'll say the left cares too much about people and the right doesn't care enough. And I'll tell you what I mean, because they're, they're equally as wrong here. P young people on the right will attack you with facts in, in, in either positive or negative ways, and they're open to conversation very often, I believe, because they want to prove you wrong. That's what I've seen from <clears> that. I, that's not a fact, it's an opinion. Whereas people on the left want to accommodate for everybody so much that if you say anything negative about anybody that they agree with, they jump to their defense. So I'll bring up the Israel argument, which is an argument that I don't know enough about to form an opinion. I truly do not. Yeah. But if you are pro-Palestine... Well, that sounds like yeah. pretty much everybody talking exactly. about it. Exactly. Be being pro-Palestine doesn't mean you hate the Jews necessarily. And being pro-Israel doesn't mean that you hate everybody who... who you, you hate Palestinians. Mm -hmm. But I'll talk to people on the right and they'll, they'll be happier to talk about it than people on the left, but the second I say that, you know, Palestine should have land, which again, I don't, I don't have a firm opinion on, mm -hmm. they'll say, dude, you're Jewish, how could you say that? I'll say, because people are people, and then I'll talk to people on the left about it, and I'll say, There's a, there are a lot of concerns of terror, and they'll say, don't you dare call everybody, everybody who's Palestinian a terrorist. And, I, and on both sides, you're, so, mm -hmm. so, yes, I think the right is more open to conversation, but I think that more people on the right are trying to lure you into a cave where they can prove you wrong. I don't want to be proven right or wrong right now. I want to discuss. Because my opinions on things have changed. My opinions really are not taking a 180. I have all my opinions, but my opinion on opinions is changing. <laughs> that's, that's the most important thing I'd like to highlight here. Yeah. You know, if I'm talk I used to think that and we've talked about this. I used to think that if you didn't agree with me, you hated people. <clears throat> now I've learned a different thing. And I'm not, and what I'm advocating for now is I'm not asking people to change their perspectives. I'm asking people to, to stop having your feet so firmly on the ground when you're a child. Because I'm a child. You know, I can't rent a car. I can't smoke a cigarette, nor do I intend to. But at the end of the day, I can't tell you about, I can't, tell you with authority about economics. I can tell you what I think. Mm -hmm. I haven't taken an econ class or a finance class. And we need to, young You're already doing better than most experts on CNN, I think. Well, <laughs> people on the left and the right need to, need to realize that facts are facts, feelings are feelings, logic is logic, but the more and more we try to prove each other wrong, the less progress we're gonna make. Because I, I have had the mindset, that's, which is why I understand it. I've had the mindset where all I wanted to do was just own the conservatives. And I know people who have had the mindset where all they want to do is own the libs. Yeah. And by the way, I know you're not just saying this because Kyle Kashuv, who I've gotten to know well, who falls often on the other side of this than you, he's now working with Turning Point and he's you know, trying to strengthen uh, the Second Amendment and all, all sorts of other things. Uh, you guys are friends. And you guys are still able to talk about these things. And we, you know, I had originally said maybe we could get both of you guys in here, but we thought this would be a good opportunity just to let you do your thing, and I'll have Kyle on separately. But you guys are, despite your differences, you're, you're able to, to talk. A lot of things Kyle does I don't like. A lot of, almost everything he says I disagree with. There are some things he says that I think are inappropriate. I've said some inappropriate stuff, and, and you know, 
I understand if you don't agree with me and you want to come out and speak, I, I, I'm proud that I was able to speak after the shooting and Kyle did too. So I, I, have, an under, I have a deep understanding of his position. So beyond the podcast, and I will give you my word that I will do the podcast. Oh, please, no, uh, I was, yeah. I, well, you asked me to do it. The, the original I email was, can you do my show? And I'm lucky <laughs> enough to be here. Yeah, I'm more than happy to do it. We'll, we'll make that happen. Um, what, what do you want to do? Have you, have you really been able to think about it at this point? I know it's sort of an annoying question to ask a young person. No, I mean, you know, I can't tell you what college I want to go to. I can't tell you where I want to be in 50 years. But I can tell you that right now I want to dedicate my time to doing what I think is the best thing I could do with my platform because I have a large platform for all the worst reasons and with great platform comes great responsibility. Spider-Man. Um, exactly. Uncle Ben said so, that, I believe. It, it was Uncle Ben. Yeah. Um, but when you say Uncle Ben on this show, people might be like kindly talking about Ben Shapiro. <laughs> this, is, this is Uncle Ben Parker. Yeah. Um, and I have a responsibility to do what I think is right. And what I think is right is advocating for what I believe in, but also making sure that the conversation is, is mended and healed. Because who better than the people who are about to become adults to try and make sure that our next generation of adults knows how to work together? I mean, you got Nelson and Rubio in Florida. I'll give you a great example. Nelson and Rubio have passed some great bills together because Nelson and Rubio don't see eye to eye, eye, to eye but they are able to put their differences aside. They get along, and I, I want more of that. Yeah. Well, man, I know a lot of people are worried about the future, but I mean, it's clear to me that your future is bright. And if we can hand it over, if we can hand it over to to, to people like you, we'll, we'll be all right. Because th this is this is everything that I've been trying to do here. I think is summed up in in the way that you're trying to go forward with life. It's it's pretty awesome, really. It's well, inspiring. I appreciate that. And let me ask you something. Yes. Yeah. Your show. Uh -oh. show. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. We're gonna switch. Wow, you're flipping it. Emotionally well, you you are right. in theater. All right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So sparkle. <laughs> um, so, what what are the qualities you are looking for in a candidate if you are going to vote for them over President Trump in twenty twenty? Oh man, you're really putting me on the spot here. Yeah, this is my show. Well, look, I've said this before, but it seems to me that the, unfortunately the Democratic Socialist wing of the Democrats has gone really far left. I mean, look, the word socialist is in the is in the title now, and, you know, and, being, and that they've purged, right, I guess they're being honest for what they are, and they're fighting for what they believe in. I happen to disagree with virtually all of it, but that they're doing that. They've basically purged what I think are the, the remaining liberals, as you said, classical liberals before. And I think, unfortunately, that leaves a lot of us, it's why people watch my show, because I've just been honest about what I see here, that leaves a lot of us suddenly with allies in places that we didn't think we were going to have allies. And it's sort of unfortunate in one way because you want to always think that you can sort of stay home and, and fix things. You got to pop uh, the bubble. But at the moment, I find my allies ha certainly are libertarians on the right. I think I can, you know, be allies in a lot of ways with Ben Shapiro, even though we have differences on the margins, like with abortion and some of that other stuff. Um, but I don't see, at the moment, when, from when we're taping this right now, I just don't see any hope in the short term for the Democrats. My hope is that this thing implodes, that they get probably have to get crushed in the midterms, which is not looking likely, but that they get crushed in the midterms and then they have a major course uh, adjustment where they go, we've got to return to liberalism. Sure. And that is the answer because I believe liberalism is the answer. I think it's the only answer. But if you know somebody that I should be paying attention to, let me know because I, I don't see much. We'll keep in touch, and I, I know I know we're <laughs> you've got a list. You exactly. got a list in there I'll, somewhere. I'll send, you, I'll send you some liberals. I yeah, know. yeah. Um, one more thing. I know we're bad on time. Yeah. 
what is your favorite musical and with which musical character do you identify the most? Oh man, yeah, you're no, really going is, for it. I, I'd rather do favorite superhero movie or something, but... Well, uh, what's your favorite superhero movie? Let's go to that. Well, I was telling you during the break that I, I mean, I really thought Infinity War was spectacular. I think yes. it was just done right. Loki has to be dead, though. That's Gamora, that's the key thing. I want, but here's the thing. I love Gamora. I think <laughs> she's, she's an amazing I know. character. She's a badass. But if they bring her back, which they will, they're going to bring her she, back. She was killed in the process of getting the Soul Stone, so they could say that once they destroy the stones or whatever, however it may be, right. that they could bring her back. And I'm, I, it'll be nice to see her back because I love her as an actress. I love her chemistry with everyone. Yeah. But that was a powerful I death know. for me. You can't keep killing people and bringing them back. That's why Loki has to be dead this time, yeah. which they basically made it sound like, yeah, we're but not it, it, I think in, with you. Infinity War did a good yeah. job with, you know, uh, Tony's been in MCU for what, like 20 movies? Yeah. And he didn't die. Gamora, this is her third film, and I felt that. Yeah. I, I felt that death. I hate, I hate to tell you, but she's, well, hate to tell you or whatever. She's, she's going to be alive. But putting that aside, Guardians 3 favorite musical, you know, I'm not a huge musical guy. I'm not. I know you don't want to hear that as, as a theater that. guy. Yeah, no. Not a huge musical. I like. I liked Mamma Mia. Is that, okay. You know, we can yeah. we can find some common ground. We there. can get some common. See, that's what it's about. Common exactly, ground. Exactly. Listen, man. We, we could have talked about Marvel movies and all these other. You you gave me a lot well, of funny I, pop culture references to, before have, we started. You have to uh, you have to you know break new ground, and that's what I was trying to do here. That's what it's all about. I have no doubt you have a bright future, and you're probably going to be president. Is that where this is all leading? President of Stoneman Douglas High School's Drama Club? No, because my dear friend, uh, she ran and she's doing a phenomenal job. On that note, guys, follow Cameron on Twitter. It's Cameron underscore Caskey.